This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 117. I'm Jim Garrett. Today's topic, asked and answered, how many times is too many? Hey everybody, I hope you're having a great week. So today's topic relates to a frequent irritant during depositions, which is the intentional repetition of the same question over and over. What to do and at what point to begin instructing the deponent not to answer the same question again. Further, at what point, if any, should you suspend the deposition, at least temporarily, for the purpose of seeking an order forbidding or limiting any future examination of the same deponent? This episode came about because of a memorandum order from an Ohio federal judge on March 10, 2023, in the Seifert versus Hamilton County case, in which the deponent was asked the same or substantially similar question about two dozen times by our count. In a moment, I'm going to rattle off those questions so that you can ponder what you would have done if you were defending that witness. In Seifert, the lawyer instructed the deponent multiple times not to answer the question that was being repeated over and again but didn't file a motion and seek an order on the issue when the deposition was over, which is mandatory under the rules. And the lawyer also didn't halt or suspend the deposition uh, temporarily, which is another option in the event of harassment in the form of repeated questions. Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 30C2 and 30D3 and their state analogs tell us that if you instruct a witness not to answer on the grounds of excessive repetition of the same or substantially similar question, because it's risen to the level of harassment or oppression, you must then follow up by presenting a motion to the court on the issue. You can't simply instruct the deponent not to answer and leave it at that, or leave it to the examining lawyer to seek a court ruling on the matter. The judge in Seifert, in her memorandum order, appeared to take the defense lawyer to task or failing to either halt the deposition or at least follow up with a motion as the rules demand. So let's cover a couple basic points as a primer on dealing with excessively repetitive questions in a deposition. Point number one, is it permissible to instruct a deponent not to answer a question when a defending lawyer has a good faith to believe that the sheer repetition of a question has become harassing oppressive or in bad faith? And the answer, of course, is absolutely. Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 30C2 and 30D3 both specifically contemplate instructions not to answer where the examination is being conducted in bad faith or in a manner that oppresses, harasses, or embarrasses the witness. And it's certainly plausible that an examination involving excessive repetition of the same or similar question can rise to that level. Federal Rule of Evidence 403 is the evidentiary rule on point. It allows exclusion of relevant evidence for several reasons, but most pertinent to today's topic is the clause dealing with the needless presentation of cumulative evidence. That's the source code, Federal Rule of Evidence 403, the authority for the asked and answered objection. And we've got a case for you in the show notes on that exact point. It's the Fairweather case where the court said, quote, 
the traditional objection that a question has been asked and answered is a shorthand way of making a 403 time-wasting and cumulative evidence objection. If a question has already been asked and answered, to ask it again and demand an answer would be to waste time and needlessly present cumulative evidence, end quote. Next question. When you instruct the deponent not to answer questions because of the harassing or oppressive repetition of a question, is there more you must do or is the instruction not to answer sufficient? Well, as noted a moment ago, the clear answer under the federal rules and a supermajority of states that follow them is that an instruction not to answer for this reason must be followed by a motion to forbid further deposition of the witness or to limit it in some way. That's the mandate of Civil Procedure Rule 30C2 and 30D3. Why? Well, because assessments of harassment or oppression in the way an examination is conducted is by its nature highly subjective. There is no one-size-fits-all bright-line standard for notions of harassment, oppression, embarrassment, or bad faith. I suspect only half-kiddingly that some lawyers define harassment or oppression as any moment during a deposition in which you are scoring points against their witness. So the drafters of the rules imposed a no exceptions obligation on lawyers who instruct opponents not to answer questions because of perceived harassment, oppression, embarrassment, and so on. Lawyers must then swiftly move for an order on the matter. And that's really in sharp contrast, as you know, to the way the rules treat lawyers who instruct witnesses not to answer on the other two recognized grounds for such instructions under Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 30C2, which is on the grounds of privilege or to enforce a prior court order. So when a question calls for the disclosure of privileged information, an instruction not to answer by itself is enough. There's no obligation for the instructing lawyer to then seek a court order on the instruction. And the same is true where the question calls for the disclosure of information that a prior court order has forbidden or limited. So these two grounds for instructions not to answer are self-executing. In these situations, it's the job of the examining lawyer to involve the court if they wish. All right, third question. How many repetitions of the same or substantially similar question is too many? Well, there's no bright line rule, nor could there be, as you can imagine, because there are simply too many factors that inform the analysis as to how much repetition is too much. Some repetition or variation might be warranted, depending on the circumstances. But our collective assessment of the cases dealing with asked and answered objections is that five or more repetitions of the same or nearly identical question may be the tipping point and is the point at which courts are more likely to agree with your decision to instruct a deponent not to answer the same question again. As I say, this isn't a bright line rule. It's an assessment, an accumulated assessment based on the way that courts have treated asked and answered objections in a variety of situations, both in depositions and in court hearings and trials. Now, certainly, there'll be some of you who will say, 
five is too many. And you might be right, depending on the circumstances. But that seems to be a common thread running through a number of the cases about how many is too many. And we'll talk about some of the factors to consider in our practice tips section at the end of this episode. Our sense is that judges want to see some restraint before litigators begin actively blocking testimony in depositions. Obviously, the more you tolerate before instructing deponents not to answer, the better your chances in pursuing an order forbidding or limiting more testimony from a deponent because of harassment based on repetition. And remember that once you instruct a deponent not to answer based on harassment, embarrassment, or oppression due to the repetition of a question, you must also announce your intention to seek a motion based on that instruction. And you must do so, quote, during the deposition, close quote, based on the language of Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 30D3. So if you're going to instruct the deponent not to answer a question based on repetition, you must also announce your intention to seek an order on the matter while the deposition is in progress and before it has concluded. Now here's a sample objection that perfectly tracks the rule and the cases. I'm going to instruct the witness not to answer the question again, and I'm moving for a protective order on the record under Rule 30D3A and 403 on the grounds that the question has been asked and answered numerous times. Now, nerd alert, that's a little clunky, a little long, but it's on point, and it perfectly invokes the correct rules and the phrasing of those rules. Adversaries will use any opening they can to undermine your ability to pursue relief. And that includes both situations where you didn't technically move for a protective order during the deposition and situations where you didn't correctly phrase the fact that you were going to seek a protective order. You'll see that in the Doe versus Texas Christian case in the show notes where a judge had to rule on whether a lawyer had properly preserved their right to seek a protective order by saying not I'm going to move for a protective order, but instead we'll reserve our rights to seek redress if and when relief was sought. The examining lawyer in that case challenged that language, saying that the uh, instructing lawyer didn't properly invoke the language of the rule. All right, so back to the case that led to this episode. I want to read some of the questions asked of the deponent, who happened to be a physician in Seaford. And as I run through these, ask yourself, A, at what point, if any, would you have instructed the witness not to answer any further questions? And B, at what point, if any, would you have suspended the deposition temporarily to seek court relief? Because the Rule 30D3A allows you, if you choose, to unilaterally suspend the deposition for the purpose of seeking court relief. The language of that rule says, quote, if the objecting deponent or party so demands, the deposition must be suspended for the time necessary to obtain an order, close quote. By way of background, Seifert is a lawsuit filed by parents whose minor child received social services and medical care from a county family services agency, a hospital, and various individuals in Ohio. The parents sued some of those providers and alleged that those defendants, at least some of them, had interfered with their rights as parents and obstructed their access to their minor child. 
At one point, the parent's lawyer deposed a doctor who treated their child while in the hospital. During the deposition, the doctor was asked hypothetically whether he would discharge a child against medical advice if a court ordered him to do so. So that's the question that was posed in one form or another some two dozen times by our count, in response to which the doctor appeared to struggle with the hypothetical. In fact, there was no court order directing him to discharge the child, and the doctor appeared, from the opinion, uh, to do his best by saying he couldn't really speculate on what he would do, especially if it appeared the judge was making medical rather than legal decisions. But the doctor seemed to say he would generally follow the law even if he disagreed with what, at the time of the deposition, was a purely theoretical scenario. So that's the backdrop for these questions. A lawyer trying to get a clear answer about a hypothetical court ruling, and a doctor responding by saying it would just depend, that he would take his professional obligations seriously, but that he would do his best to comply. It doesn't appear from the memorandum order issued by the judge that the judge thought the lawyer could improve any further on the question or that the doctor could improve any further on the answers for the same reasons. Now, I'm not quoting the exact answers that the doctor gave in response to each question other than, as I have already indicated, that the doctor seemed to do his best with the limitations of the question. Uh, further, there was a great deal of back and forth between the lawyers, including many instructions not to answer and other commentary. And also because the doctor did not answer a number of these questions based on the instruction from his counsel. So here are the questions on that topic quoted in the opinion, and with regard to which I would ask you, at what point, if any, would you have instructed the witness not to answer the questions? Question number one. And if the judge said release the child, you would do so, right? Question number two. Well, let's just keep it real simple here. If the judge or the magistrate said, I disagree with you, allow the child to be discharged, you would go ahead and follow what the judge said, right? Question number three. I'm not asking that. I'm not asking about, I'm just saying, you would follow the order of the judge, wouldn't you? Number four. So let's just put this here, a real stark, clear point of view. If the judge said, discharge the patient, and you didn't think it was safe to discharge the patient, you would refuse to follow the judge's order. Isn't that what you're saying? All right, anybody pull the plug yet? Here's question number five. Okay, but recommendation, I'm not asking about that. But let's just say you're out here on the street and the policeman says, don't cross the sidewalk. You would obey that order, wouldn't you? Question number six, or would you? You'd just say, forget you, I'm just going to cross. Would you follow the law or not? Question number seven. So you would leave it wide open. You would go ahead and disavow what the judge says, right? Question eight. I want to make clear what I'm asking you here. I'm not asking you about the judge giving me a medical decision, okay? Or a medical recommendation. That's you over here. You're the doctor, okay? I'm asking about a force of law. If you received an order from the judge to release the child, would you comply or not? Question number nine. All right. Now, I want to take that little thought and put it aside. I'm not asking about a medical decision, okay? So just put that aside. And let's say the judge orders you to do it. Question number 10. 
with the medical decision out of it, just the plain bare bones order of a judge without a medical decision, okay? Just release the child. Would you or would you not comply? Right? That's question number 10. Anybody pull the plug yet and instruct this witness not to answer? Question number 11. Now, let me ask you this. Are there other circumstances in your life where you refuse to follow the law? Question 12. You would follow the law in all other circumstances? Let me ask you. Do you pay your taxes? Question 13. Okay. Do you cheat on your taxes? Question 14. My question to you is, are there other examples in your life where you refuse to follow the law? Question 15. Let me ask you this. Are there circumstances where you refused to follow the law? Question 16. So you're saying to me, that's your general rule. You follow the law. Question 17. Even when you disagree. Question 18. All right. Even when it calls for a medical opinion, right? Question 19. Well, let me ask you this. Let's say the judge ordered the child be released and the parents came to get the child. At that point, would you refuse to allow the parents to take the child? Question 20. All right, well, let's say you were held under an injunction to force you to leave, to release the child. Question 21. Would you comply with that injunction? Question 22. That means an order that says, Doctor, I hereby order you to release that child. If you got that in the mail, would you comply with it? Question 23. Let me ask you this. Would you go to jail rather than release the child? Question 24. You refuse to answer the jail question? So those are the questions reported in the March 10, 2023 court ruling. Ultimately, the judge ruled that despite the instructions not to answer, the doctor, struggling as he did, by and large, answered the questions, and the judge would not allow the reopening or continuation of the doctor's deposition. Now, there's also language in the court order indicating that there were more questions uh, asked of the deponent, uh, but they were not raised as an issue in the uh, court hearing on this particular point. Now, sometimes witnesses are asked questions they simply can't answer or speculate about. If the witness says they don't know or they can't form an opinion, how many more bites at the apple does an examining lawyer get? Sometimes I don't know is the best and final answer that a deponent can give. Sometimes it's a lazy answer, one that deserves further probing. That's why it's so difficult to draw a one-size-fits-all bright-line rule on whether and when repetition has transitioned into harassment. So let's go through some practical tips and then we'll wrap up. So some thoughts about repetition. As we've talked about, there isn't and probably won't ever be a single one-size-fits-all answer, a bright-line rule as to how many is too many because it just depends on too many factors. But the courts do appear to support instructions not to answer and further support a halt to further questions of the same kind after about five repeats of the same or nearly identical question that has been squarely answered to the best of the deponent's ability. So that's where we'd be looking to call foul on an examination, assuming the witness has answered the question directly and completely. Once or twice in terms of repetition, 
could very well and often is a legitimate effort to explore the nuance of an answer, or it could simply be inadvertent. Three times, again, it depends on the context, depends on the clarity of the question and the answer. But from the collective import of the cases that we looked at, four, five, six repetitions or more, seem to begin that transition from good faith into bad faith and into harassment and the needless presentation of cumulative evidence. So the message we also get from the cases that we reviewed is that courts are not supportive of hair trigger instructions not to answer when a question has been repeated in the same or substantially similar form just a few times, sometimes in the process of impeaching a deponent on cross-examination. The examining lawyer will legitimately circle back to a given point after having shown documents or perhaps obtained a concession from the deponent where the examiner can now legitimately say, now are you willing to admit fill in the blank? And there are some judges, even if outliers, that think you shouldn't or should rarely interfere with an examination simply because the examiner has stopped on a given point and isn't moving any further. From the Zelaney case in the show notes to this episode, which we also discuss in the fourth edition of the book on page 558 on the topic of asked and answered objections. The Zelaney court had the following to say, quote, there is nothing wrong with asking a question multiple times during a deposition. Sometimes the witness didn't answer it or answered only part of it, or the answer is implausible, or the answer builds in caveats that a slight rephrasing of the question might expose, or asking essentially the same question from different angles or in slightly different ways yields different answers. Unless repeated questioning crosses the line into harassment, it can be an effective technique of cross-examination." All right, so there's that, but it really reinforces uh, the point we're making here, doesn't it? That there are legitimate reasons to come back at a deponent multiple times on a given point until it crosses the line into harassment. All right, so let's talk about some of the factors to consider in deciding whether and when to instruct a deponent not to answer continued repeated questions. Number one, the sheer number of times that the identical question has been asked. In other words, just a raw tabulation. Number two, whether the deponent has fully and squarely answered the question and how many times they've done so. Number three, the number of times that an obvious similar variant of the question has been asked. Same basic question with slight rewording. Number four, whether deponents have not budged from their original answer, making plain that repetition is not uncovering anything new. Or, on the other hand, whether the deponents have changed their answer, waffled, or qualified their answer such that it's logical to ask the question again in one form or another. Although one court uh, even said it almost doesn't matter whether the answers are consistent or not. That's the neighbor case in the show notes where the court said, quote, how many times a witness may be asked for the identical information, irrespective of contradictory answers, is within the sound discretion of the trial court, end quote. Next point, is the repetition being used as a kind of blunt force object? to bludgeon the deponent into changing their answer. 
is the repetition accompanied by physical or verbal signs of oppression, bad faith, or harassment, such as where the examiner is raising his or her voice at the deponent, or is displaying an angry or agitated demeanor, possibly shoving documents across the table, interrupting the deponent, or accompanying the repetition with phrases like, and remember, you're under oath. Another factor, are the questions intended to embarrass or humiliate the deponent? Obviously, some questions are improper to ask once. So even a single repetition might warrant an instruction not to answer. And that can include, as you can imagine, questions about traumatic life events that don't really bear on the issue in a given case, such as extramarital affairs, substance abuse or recovery, criminal histories, the loss of loved ones, or physical or mental illnesses, anything that appears intended to embarrass or to subject the witness to duress. Take a look at the Black Elk Energy case in the show notes. There, a lawyer for the plaintiff repeatedly asked the CEO of a company that operates oil platforms off the coast of Louisiana whether he would like to apologize to the families of employees who were killed or injured by a platform explosion. Seven times that question was asked in one form or another, according to the judge that issued the opinion in that case. So that's a pretty good overview of the factors to consider in reaching the point where you begin instructing your deponent not to answer the question. Let's cover a few related questions and then we'll wrap up. What if the repetition is coming from different lawyers attending the deposition? Suppose, for example, there's one plaintiff and 10 different defendants, each represented by a different lawyer. Can the lawyer for each defendant ask the exact same question? Which is to say, can a deponent be forced to answer the exact same question 10 times? And we chose 10 defendants for this hypothetical because it really helps answer the question. The ACID test is whether under Rule 30D3A and 403, an examination of a deponent has become harassing, oppressive, embarrassing, or whether it's being conducted in bad faith. Those rules make no distinction as to whether the harassment or bad faith is coming from one lawyer or 10. They focus on the nature of the examination. So it doesn't matter whether lawyers 9 and 10 haven't asked that exact same question if the deponent has already answered it squarely eight times. Now, of course, there may be some justification for follow-up by lawyers 9 and 10 if lawyers 1 through 8 asked the question and didn't get a clear answer and didn't press the witness for a definitive response. But unnecessary repetition doesn't become acceptable just because the repetition is coming at the deponent from different chairs in the room. I would be less concerned about the simple head count in terms of the numbers of lawyers asking questions and more concerned with whether the examination in general has become harassing or oppressive because of the excessive repetition. And that's especially true if the 10 lawyers in our hypothetical were all present for the entirety of the questioning and have all heard the exact same answers. As a footnote, if you're representing a client or a deponent where there's a possibility that numerous lawyers may be questioning your client and that repetition might be a problem, that's the time before the deposition starts to seek a protective order, clarifying the manner in which the examination will be conducted, including a provision, which is not uncommon, that provides that deponents are not to be subjected to unwarranted repetition by multiple lawyers. 
All right, that's it for today. The bottom line here is that repetitious questions are problematic and hazardous to your deponents who may assume incorrectly that being asked the same question over and over is okay if you haven't spoken up. A lawyer who is allowed to ask the same questions without limit is like a boxer who keeps hitting the same spot over and over during the match. At some point, that examining lawyer is likely to have a breakthrough by sheer force of the repetition and may make unjust progress because the deponent is getting worn down. All right, that's it for today. As always, thank you so much for listening. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you again soon.